the power that comes from this place is just at times overwhelming, isn't it? All right. Well, tonight it's our privilege uh, to have with us as our speaker, Reverend David Ralph. Uh, uh, Reverend Ralph is the district superintendent of the Colorado District Church of the Nazarene. Prior to that, he spent years in pastoral ministry, and um, he was a student at Nazarene Bible College when he was 18 years old and was here for one year before he transferred to what is now Southern Nazarene University. So he's really one of our alums, and we're just pleased to have him speak to us tonight. He, he's a very busy man uh, covering the state of Colorado for the church, and um, he also serves on our board of trustees. So we're really privileged to have David here tonight. He spoke this morning in our, our family chapel, and uh, you'll enjoy hearing him tonight. God bless you. Let's stand and worship. Our God is a good God. Amen. you tonight. I enjoyed your staff and professors this morning, and it was a delight to be with them. And it's uh, fun to get to be with you here tonight. Uh, this is uh, my uh, first time to speak to you all, and it's a joy. And as Dr. Gray said, I'm your, uh, I'm an alum. Uh, if you look over, over here, I don't know if uh, any of you live in these Pine Creek village apartments, anybody over here? Uh, well, my brother-in-law and I drywalled over half of those while I was here. Uh, 162 units, my brother was brother-in-law was very fastidious about keeping, so, and I even broke my toe over there while I was stocking those apartments, and I was here, so I sat where you sat, not in this building, this building wasn't here at that time, and as uh, Dr. Graves said, I was 18 at the time, and, um, and uh, this, uh, this school has been a real blessing. It's been fun to serve on the Board of Trustees as well. And I often think of you when we serve on the Board of Trustees, how all these trustees talk about how glowing these ivory walls are and how wonderful this place is. And I'm thinking, if I were sitting in your seat, uh, I'm thinking, I bet you're saying, yeah, right. You know, it doesn't seem so glowing and ivory ivy walls to me right now because you're going through the crucible of the education process and I understand all of that and uh, so when they speak of these glowing terms you're sitting there going just get me out of here and uh, you just want the sheepskin don't you you don't even want the education you just want the sheepskin uh, I'm sure that's what a lot of you are saying just get me out of here you will look back on these days with with nostalgia okay and you'll love them someday. But I know you hate them right now. I'm kidding. You probably love them. I hope you do. But, uh, but uh, blessings on you and your labors as you prepare for ministry. I'm going to talk to you. And I know some of you may not all be preparing in the way that I uh, will be preaching uh, to you a little night. So you may have to indulge me. Uh, but I'm, I'm talking to you as future leaders for the church. 
And I'm talking to you as what a, what a district superintendent needs uh, a little bit. And, uh, you know, I thought as I would uh, prepare to deliver my heart to you tonight, I thought, well, you know, uh, I'm the DS of a mountain region. So I thought I'd maybe tell you a story about a man. Uh, he happens to be a mountain man. His name just happens to be Jed. He was a poor mountaineer who barely kept his family fed. And one day out, he was shooting for some food. And up popped from the ground a bubbling crude. Oil, that is, black gold. Texas tea. Well, before you know it, Jed's a millionaire. He loads up his kinfolk. And uh, he says, let's get away from here. And California is the place to be. So they loaded up the truck and moved to Beverly, Beverly Hills, that is, swimming pools and movie stars. Thanks, God, for Nickelodeon, right? You guys wouldn't even know that if you hadn't watched it the first pass. It's a second pass on Nickelodeon. But let me just tell you, the Beverly Hillbillies are a classic example of transformation, right? Wrong. The Beverly Hillbillies are a classic example of transplantation and not transformation because the whole story is a built, built around how they are culturally inept and how they are social misfits where they live. And I, and I know that's a cute story, but, but the fact of the matter is as I hear that story, I think about the, that it is so, is it possible, I think this is the, the question that it poses to me, is it possible for people to be transplanted out of the world and into the church and not be transformed. Is that a possibility? That they could be transplanted and yet not be transformed. Could that be part of the potential of the, of the problem of the church today? Is that we don't have radically transformed either leaders or laymen or people who are so transformed that they are completely different people in Christ. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Uh, there's a famous Dutch theologian here, and I'm not talking about Dr. Powers, uh, although, although I know that's where he lived and he gave a marvelous message a few months ago on the book of Jude. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But there's a famous Dutch theologian named Kierkegaard, and he wrote this about the church. He said, I went to the Regal Cathedral. I sat in the velvet pews. I watched the sun through the leaded stained glass window. I watched the cleric as he mounted the chancel steps, dressed in velvet robes, graced with tassels, opened a gold-gilded Bible and marked it with a silken marker. And with hallowed intonations, he opened the Bible and said, if any man would be my disciple, says Jesus, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. And Kierkegaard said, I looked around and, I, and he said, nobody was laughing. Now that's kind of an interesting response to what you just heard. He went on to say, it's one thing to love the message of dying for the cross. It's another thing when you expect everyone to listen to you when you're making at that time, this was the mid-1800s, 
uh, $20,000 a year. It would be like $150,000 or $200,000 a year. And he, he goes on and he talks about the Jesus of Scripture and the Jesus of Western culture. Now, you say, where am I going with that? I'm asking myself, where am I going? No. Let me just tell you, I'm afraid that the church is losing its grip to be the transforming agent in the world we live in. Rather than the we acculturizing the world, the world is acculturizing us. We need transformed leaders that are so transformed that they make a mark on the world in which they live. And what I feel like happens oftentimes is that the church becomes a transplant just into the culture and the culture begins to transform them rather than them transform the culture. What could turn that around? Well, let me just tell you. I believe what can turn that around are spirit-filled men and women of God. There, there's a marvelous uh, visual picture in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. Uh, now, now, I know it's illustrative more than it is exegetical in the sense of telling uh, the actual spirit-filled message, but uh, it's the book of, of Judges, and it's the story of Samson. Uh, there's about five passages that talk about Samson and talk about Samson and how he was a powerful man. Now, he was not a powerful man. He was not a strong man. You know, I, I don't know how many guys we have here, but he was not any stronger than any of you. You could have taken Samson on in an arm wrestling uh, contest, and you might have won. Because the scripture says that Samson was as any other man until the Spirit of the Lord came on him. Now I'm going to go backwards with Samson. Uh, who has uh, Judges 16.20? If you, Judges 16.20? Okay. And one translation says, he went out as any other man. He went out as any other man. I, I, I would say to you, the problem that we encounter today is we see so many people who are going out as any other man, and they are not going out transformed. They're not going out with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. They're just simply going out. He thinks, I'll just go out. I'll just go out and preach. I'll just go out and do the work of God. I'll just do it like I've always done it. But he didn't realize that he was going out like any other man. Let me just tell you, if you have a pulpit ministry, if you have a preaching ministry, if you have a ministry that leads a church forward, we need for you to go out in such a way that you know that you know that the Spirit of God is going out with you. And when you go, you're not going out in your own strength. You're not going out in your own power. You're not just preaching thoughts that are interesting or intriguing or are faddish or are common with the day. You're going out under the infusion and the awareness that the Spirit of God is going with you. I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, some of you may have been at this meeting, but I heard Dr. Jim Cimbala preach to about 8,000 pastors. And he said to these pastors, he said, you know, a lot of you are just simply trying to teach. 
He said, you can't teach a dead horse how to, how to rise up. He said, you can't teach dead people how to rise up. He said, what you need is a resurrection. And he said, we live in, the, we live in an enabling power with a living God who enables powerful resurrections in the lives of people. Old things pass away, and he said, you can go back and you can teach to the dead people, but he said, all you're doing is you're just teaching something that is dry and dead. He said, we need the power of God for resurrection. He gave this illustration. He said he was in his church there in Brooklyn Tab. My wife and I visited it uh, a few, a couple years ago. And uh, when we went there, there's something about that, and I know their prayer ministry is very, very significant. But he said he sat on the, I think he said he sat on the second row, and he said, uh, as I was sitting there, now, I know we don't understand this that much. We, we can be confused by impression. There's a book out called Impressions, Can You Trust Them? An old book. But he said, I got this impression that God had said, preach now. It was about 12 minutes into the service. And he said, he said I just kind of tried to brush that back, and I thought, no, 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 no. That's, he said, that's not... That's, that's crazy. And he said, I sat there. Calvin Hunt, their worship leader, kept leading them in worship. And he said, I sat there. And he said, um, as I sat there, he said, I felt that impression that, that would not leave me. It plagued me. And he said, I just thought uh, the, the Spirit was saying to me, preach now. But he thought, no, that's fanaticism. And he said, uh, the third time, that impression was so overwhelming, I could not deny it. And I'm sure there's studies on this. I'm sure there's ways we can know how to walk with God and, and understand that these are really the impressions of God. I understand all that stuff. But this was very, very real to him. And he stood to his feet, walked to the platform, very graciously turned to his worship leader, Calvin Hunt. And he said, Calvin, I kind of like change the order of service here this morning. He said, uh, I just want to give some thoughts and then we'll continue to worship at the end. And uh, he stood... But he said, before I preach, he said to Calvin, he said, would you tell your testimony? He said it was like God had just simply infused him with this power to, to tell his testimony. And he told how he was delivered from drugs and how he was delivered from alcohol and how God had set him completely free and gave him the power to overcome those addictions. And he said it went like five to seven minutes, just power, power, power. You know, and he said, he sat down, I stood and spoke for about 12 minutes, and he said, then I gave an altar call, and he said, the altar call lined with people, and he said, um, and then turned it back over to Calvin Hunt. I went and sat down, the service process through the end of it, and it was over. And he said, you know, oftentimes as you're a pastor, if you preach or you do something that you kind of thought was led of the Lord, you begin to second guess yourself. And you say, was I just crazy? Was I losing my mind? Was that really of God? And he told this to these pastors who were struggling and agonizing and trying to move these churches, some, some of them dead and some of them lifeless. And he said, um, I went back to my office that week, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. He said, my daughter came into my office that week. She works down, worked downstairs in the, book, in the bookstore, which is on the streets of New York City. And, he, and she came in and she said, Daddy, isn't God great? And he said, well, of course God is great. What do you mean, isn't God great? And she said, isn't he magnificent? And she said, he said, well, of course he's, what, what are you getting at? She said, well, I was working downstairs at the bookstore. And she said, um, I was selling 
some of the books and paraphernalia at the bookstore. And uh, she said, a man came in, uh, and I think this was maybe two or three weeks later. Uh, my, my chronology is, uh, I, I, he struggled with it for a few days, but two or three weeks later, she came up to his office. And she said, this man came in and she said, he said, you know, that song that you guys sang on and pointed back three weeks earlier to the Sunday of which I just described to you. Uh, she said, or this, this individual, this man said, could I have a copy of that song? Could I get the, 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 the music for that song? And she said, well, my mother leads the worship and she leads the choir and she said, uh, she said when she leads the choir, God gives her the songs and she leads her choir. She doesn't read any music. Someone out in the crowd works for Zondervan and they write down the music while she's working, uh, while she's leading the choir. And she, she says after a while they put that together and they sell it as a book after they've compiled all those songs. And she said, and she described to her that whole process. And he leaned across the counter and he said, you mean to tell me your mother is Carol? Symbola? And uh, she said, yeah, I realized I'd made a mistake. In the ghetto, in the inner city, you don't usually reveal that. But she, he said, could I tell you a quick story? He said, about three weeks ago we came. He said, I work for American Airlines. And he said, uh, we had flown into New York City. And he said, we had brought our son with us. And our son had gone through rehab after rehab after rehab. And we thought, if we could just get him somewhere where the Spirit of God is so real, maybe God can move him and maybe God can do something. And we'd heard about Jim Cymbala and we'd heard about this service and we'd heard about what goes on here. And he said, we can fly because we fly for United. And he said, but somewhere about in the middle of that service, he said, I looked into, the in, into my jacket and I pulled out our tickets. And to my horror, I realized we were going to have to get up and leave the service in the middle of that worship service. And my son would not to get to hear the powerful preaching of Jim Cimbala. To my surprise, your dad stood, and, she, and then he told him the story that I've just told you. Calvin Hunt gave that marvelous message, or marvelous testimony. Your dad gave a powerful testimony, and he said, my son hit the altar, and the boy we brought with us was not the boy we took home, because he was changed. And he's been changed ever since. Now, I don't understand how God does that. I don't understand why God doesn't do that all the time. I know some people agonize with addictions for all their life. But I also know that there's a God who, when he fills his servants with his spirit, God does things. And church people are not just transplanted. Church people get transformed because his servants are filled with the Spirit of God. Let me just tell you something. I don't need you if you come out into our churches and you go out as any other man. I don't, we don't need you. We need you to be dangerous people. Do you know you're dangerous people? 
Uh, you don't look dangerous. You don't have weapons on your, on your person. You don't have a knife on you. You are dangerous people. But I just want to say this. You're only dangerous when you die out to Christ to be a weapon of righteousness. That's, when you're, that's the only time when you're dangerous. And I don't care where you are. I don't care what, uh, what, uh, what occur, wherever you minister. We went to, to the Navajo uh, Nation this last weekend. Our church took, our, all of our churches combined together and they ga gather uh, uh, all boxes and we filled a 53-foot semi. And I heard the, the pastor, Reverend Stephen Joe, he pastors the Chihutsu Church. Jonathan knows him. And he said, somewhere in my life, I said, la'a. And I asked him afterward, I said, well, what does la'a mean? And he says, la'a means I agree. I surrender. And I, I can't do this in my own. And I need for you to do something cleansing within me. And there, there's passage after passage. Uh, uh, we'll read a few of those, but, uh, and I can't take much longer today. But I, want you, I just want you to know that it is spirit-filled people who are dangerous people. I gave several of you, and I'm running a little longer than I should have, so, so I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll just give you a couple of those scriptures. Uh, who has Judges 14.6? And the Spirit of the Lord came on him. Judges 14, 19. Who has that? Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. And Judges 15, 14. Let me just say this, and I'll, I'll wrap this up. I had a lot more to give you, but, but, but I don't know where you are in your walk with the Holy Spirit. I, I just think if the Church of the Nazarene loses the emphasis of the Spirit-filled life, if we lose that it is something that is an enabling power, I went to a church, and uh, the pastor gave me his credential because he was leaving us. I won't go into all that. But for the last five years, he had talked to them about salvation. Thank the Lord for that. But he talked to them about several other things. But he said, I do not believe uh, what the Church of the Nazarene Manual teaches. And that is, and if you read the 10th article of faith, that the scripture teaches that we can be cleansed and we can be spirit-filled. And so I went into a church and for an hour and a half, this church grilled me on things of that nature. And I just finally concluded, and I said, oh, folks. I said, it's not about all of this doctrine. I just wish that I could have been here the last five years. I would have preached to you a joyous message of God's enabling grace 
that enables you to live above sin and enables you to live with the empowerment from within. I said, it's not about being beat over the head with doctrine or with a manual, but it's about an, an enabling power that makes you not go out as any other man, makes you not go out as just a transplant. It makes you transformed. Um, I'll, I'll close with this illustration. Uh, Dr. Thomas, Tom Hermes, uh, I believe you had here the Holiness Convention in 08. And I heard Dr. Tom Hermes tell a message that was so powerful about his own personal life. I'll see if I can abbreviate it because I realize my time's ended here. But uh, he told how his father, he was going to do a work of evangelism, but going to do a revival. And he stopped by his father's house, who'd been an, a, a minister, and, he, and he, he said it was the last time he saw his father. He said, son, can I tell you my story? He said, I'd heard it 20 times. And he said, but he said, sure did. And he told a harrowing story of how, as a boy, he was raised in a village in um, Syria. And in that village in Syria, they heard that jihad was coming, and they fled to another, uh, another city, but they ran from the frying pan into the fire. When they got to that place, they found that there were Muslim soldiers there. And when the Muslim soldiers met them, they immediately killed all the men. And he said, my father was killed immediately. And they said then to the women, now you must recant Christ because they were Christians. And he said, you must recant Christ. He said he was only five years old. And he said, the women said, or we will shoot you in the next day. And he told harrowing events of, of horror and, and murder. And he said, the next day my mother said, I cannot recant. Please take my son. And they took her son and her daughter. And his son was Dr. Hermes's father. He said, a Muslim soldier took me and raised me for four years. And he said, as he took me for four years, he would throw the food on the floor. I would eat. He would beat me. An uncle came and picked me up and, and was able to uh, get me out as an immigrant out to New York City. And he said, I was about nine and a half years old. And he said, for the next eight years as a teenager, I hated everybody. And he said, um, I found a Methodist Sunday school and they taught me I could be born again around 13 years of age. And he said, that Methodist Sunday school taught me, and he said, I accepted Christ. But he said, I had this hatred in my mind and in my heart. And he said, I couldn't wait to get an AK-47 in my hands and go back and kill Muslims. And he said, and as I hear the gospel of love and the message of love and the message of forgiveness, he said, something seethed and boiled within me. And he said, I knew something wasn't right. And it was at a Salvation Army uh, altar where he said, the pastor was preaching about an enabling grace that would give him love perfected in his inner heart. He said, I wanted that. I was 17 years of age. He, he tells several other things about that. But he said, at 17 years of age, God did something to my heart I cannot describe. And he said, over the years, God enabled me to love Muslims far more than I had initially hated them. And when he retired as a minister, he saved all the money he could and went, I think he said, eight trips back to Egypt. And he said he won more people to Christ when he was in retirement. More Muslims to Christ than he'd won in his whole life. That's the end story for Samson. 
And that's the end story for us. Here's, here's what we need. We need people that are spirit-filled. They don't go out as any other man. They instead go out as spirit-enabled people. They go out as spirit-embodied people. Now let me just say, if you haven't had, found that, seek it until you find it. Wesley said, preach it until you get it. And find it until you can go out as a spirit-filled person. Shall I close in prayer? Let's stand. Could I pray for you? Would you, would you like to say maybe la'a? I agree. I agree. Surrender. Maybe it's just in its infancy, your surrender. It's okay. Start it. Start it. As we pray, before you go back to class, you could say, Lord, I want to settle that question. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus and every person in this place could be a dangerous person. They could be a warrior that is sacrificed and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for each and every person here. They are precious. We need them. We need them to be spirit-filled. We need them to be transformed and transformers. And Father, right now, someone may be saying, Lord, I really didn't, haven't done that. But I say, I agree. I surrender. And I pray for that person in this night that they would start a new journey of discovery of what it is to be, and the Spirit of the Lord came on them. In Jesus' name, amen.